I've really been impressed this week in a powerful way, uh, which is some of the things that are happening to, to take the message in a different direction. Um, and, and we'll get to the Hebrew text, the text in Hebrews, maybe, in a little bit here. But uh, I just, God's been putting something on my heart that I, I just can't let go of this kingdom principle that we've been talking about for the last month. Maybe part of it's because it's been an election week, election month, and elections have been on people's minds. And I don't know if you're happy about the elections, or if you're sad about the elections, or if you're indifferent about the elections, or if you're just confused about the elections. But the thing that's really been impressing me the most here in this last week, as I've just looked at this, is that the contrast between that kingdom and the kingdom that God is building is remarkable. There are really two different tracks that the world's going down right now. Two different kingdom tracks. On the one hand, you know, Jesus said, when Pilate said, where's your kingdom? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom, Jesus says, is not of this world. I don't think he was saying that somewhere up in the clouds there's a castle that he reigns as king on. For a Jewish mindset, this world contrasts not with the world that's up there so much as the world that's coming. My kingdom is not of this eon, this age, this era. The kingdom that Jesus Christ brought, that he was the, he was the mustard seed, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, that is growing, is a kingdom that's coming. It doesn't belong to the way of thinking, the way of behaving, the way of manipulating that characterizes the kingdom of this age, the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world, in America at least, is decided on by casting a ballot. But the kingdom of God that is coming, praise God, is decided on just by the, the decree of God. And the kingdom of this age that is now trying to establish itself is a kingdom of human power, but the kingdom that is coming that's growing as a mustard seed throughout the world is a kingdom that's being established by God's power. The kingdom of this age, of this era, of human wisdom is established by human wisdom, but the kingdom that is coming, the kingdom that belongs to Christ, the mustard seed that is growing, is going along an entirely different track. And it is characterized by the wisdom of God. The kingdoms of this world are established by force, but the kingdom of God is established by love. Self-sacrificial love. Outrageous love. The kingdoms of this world, the most they can do is fight over changing different laws, but the kingdom of God is built on changing people's hearts. There's a world of difference between the two. The contrast is remarkable. The kingdoms of this world, the most they can do is create what Margaret Thatcher calls the thin veneer of civilization, upon which the ordered world hangs. She was commenting after the lights went off in, in New York City and, and all the riots that erupted there, because the lights went off for a couple hours. The lights were off. And then what was in the heart of people came out. The rampaging, the rioting, the stealing, the crime. And she says, oh, how thin is the veneer of civilization. And all the kingdoms of this world, I don't care who's in office, I don't care what political structure you're going with, the most they can accomplish at best is a thin veneer of civilization. They cannot change the heart, they cannot change the inner being of people. The most they can succeed in doing is to create a surface sort of law and order that keeps sin in check. And thank God for that, that's a good thing, I'm happy for that. But it's a thin veneer. But the kingdom that will ultimately transform the world goes to the core of a human heart. And it doesn't deal so much with behavior. The kingdoms of this world, they can only result in changing people's behavior at best. But the kingdom of God, that is growing as a mustard seed in the heart of the church and spanning out throughout the world, 
It changes the core of a person, the heart of the person, the nature of the person. And it doesn't care about veneers. It doesn't care about appearances because if you change the heart of a person, everything else follows in line. And the kingdoms of this world, they come and they go. They rise and they fall. But the kingdom of God, praise God, is a kingdom that's built on the rock. It's going to last forever. Your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever and ever from eternity to eternity. And of that kingdom, the Bible says, there will be no end. I don't know what you think about these elections, but you know what? It really doesn't matter. Whether we've got a Republican, and I'm not saying don't care. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't hold deep convictions. Hold them. And maybe even pray that the Vikings win today. It doesn't matter. What I'm saying is that what God is doing in the world is going along an entirely different track. The kingdoms of this world, they get noticed. They get up there. They do the ostentatious. They, they, they're, they're, you know, held in power by force. But the kingdom of God, in a secret, subtle, in a God kind of a way, in a self-sacrificial, loving kind of way, gradually spreads throughout the, the world. The kingdoms of this world, they set up nation against nation. This utopia against that utopia. This ideology against that ideology. Nation against nation. They think in terms of competition. That's the carnal mind. But the kingdom of God just calmly and ever so gradually keeps spreading and spreading. And it doesn't much care about nations. It doesn't care at all about nations. It doesn't care at all about governments. It can grow in a communist country. It can grow in a capitalistic country. It can grow in a totalitarian country. It just keeps on going. It, it, it encompasses more than, than the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or the Libertarian Party or the Socialist Party or the Communist Party. It doesn't care anything about race. It doesn't care about anything about ethnic background. It doesn't care anything about sociological class. It doesn't care anything about economic class. It cares about people setting up Jesus Christ as Lord in their heart. And that's the kingdom of God that is spreading. Amen. That's the one thing that it's about. And that, friends, is what's going to take over this world. The problems that we face in humanity... The problem of humankind is not solved by this idea or that idea about this person in office or that person in office. Those are band-aids put on the sores that are created by an internal cancer. Ultimately, what's going to transform the world is Jesus Christ. Praise God. Be invested in that kingdom. I, you know, people get so into their political party, and I'm not against that. Do it. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom that's going to last. That's the kingdom that makes an eternal difference. Now here's what's on my heart this morning. The kingdom of God. Where is this kingdom of God? Well, when Jesus Christ was on earth, he was, he said, the kingdom of God. Why? Because this is the one place on the planet where, king, where God is king. That's what the kingdom of God means. Where God is king is the kingdom of God. A kingdom is the place where a certain person is king. The kingdom of God is wherever God is king. The kingdom of God is nothing over and beyond those people who have made God, the Lord Jesus Christ, king of their life. That is the kingdom of God. Where God reigns supreme, that is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is composed of those people who understand what it is to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and do Jesus Christ as Lord, live out Jesus Christ as Lord. The lordship of Jesus Christ is where the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God that is now growing throughout the world that will eventually transform the world and set Jesus Christ as Lord over the entire world is composed of those people who are disciples, who are followers of Jesus Christ, who know what it is, this is what's been on my heart here, to obey, to obey God at all costs. To follow Jesus Christ. You know, the word Christian means Christ-like. 
To follow Jesus Christ means you do what Jesus Christ did. To be a disciple, it means being a disciplined one. It means one who is obedient to another. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is, to, is by definition, to be a person that is disciplined by Jesus Christ. Your life is different because Jesus Christ is Lord of that life. Jesus Christ set the example for this, and I'll here turn to Hebrews. Listen to this. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2. Start with verse 9. This is what we've been preaching on last month. Hallelujah. Lord, pour out your spirit here. But we see Jesus. We now don't see everything put under humanity's feet we've been seeing. That's going to come. We do see Jesus. Who was made a little lower than the, than the angels for a little while anyways, but he's now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Because Jesus died, we can live. That's what he's saying there. We'll talk more about that in the following weeks. He died so that we might live. Now listen to this. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. The word perfect in Greek, telao, means to complete. It doesn't mean that Jesus was morally imperfect before, but there was something to be completed. Because he was a human being, there was a completion that had to happen there. The author of Hebrews makes a lot about that in other places. And the way that that completion happened, the way that he was prepared to be the Savior of the world was through his suffering. Why? Verse 11. He was made perfect through suffering. That is through the death. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Here's, the, here's what's going on there. Jesus died. He came down to earth to die to pave the way for our salvation, to become the author of our salvation, to make salvation possible, but also then to set an example for what the family that is birthed from him should look like. We are to be Jesus imitators. Let me look ahead here a couple chapters to Hebrews chapter 5. The same theme is picked up again here, starting with verse 8. Start with verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Jesus Christ, the Son of God who knew no sin, was facing a hellish death. It wasn't sheer death that he was afraid of. It was the judgment of God that he was going to bear. He offered up loud tears and cries. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Submission. Because as a full human being, Jesus Christ had to submit. It's one of the main themes of the Gospels. Jesus Christ was perfectly obedient to the Lord. Although he was a son, the Bible says, he learned obedience. He learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, once completed, telao again, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. What he's getting at here is this. Jesus Christ, his death, his obedience to the Father is what paved the way for our salvation. And now the kingdom of God is established on this earth because of his death, because he paid the price for us. But he comes to set up his kingdom in our hearts. And the way the kingdom is set up in our hearts, and the way the kingdom of God grows through us, is by us doing what Jesus Christ did. 
He came down to earth and was radically obedient to the Father. And so also he calls Christians to be followers of him, disciples of him, to be radically obedient to him. We follow Jesus by doing what he did. The Bible portrays Jesus Christ as being obedient unto death, being obedient to the point of hell, and then calls believers, Christians, those who proclaim and profess Jesus Christ as Lord, to do the exact same thing in our life. Paul says this, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have the same attitude in your life. Who, though he was in the form of God, he didn't grasp after his equality with God, Paul says, but he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself, and he took on the nature of a servant. And he was obedient, even to the point of death. And then Paul says, let this mind be in you. That same mind, that same attitude. Be obedient, even to the point of death. Listen to a couple other passages here. Romans chapter 1. Through him, Paul says, and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call from among all the Gentiles, to, to call among all the Gentiles to obedience, that obedience which comes from faith. Or in Greek, it could be that obedience which is faith. What Paul was doing was calling people to obedience. That is what faith means. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24. Those who obey his commands live in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. You see, when Christ lives in you, his character lives in you, his spirit lives in, in, in you, and there's something, that spirit of Jesus Christ, that is Obedience to the Father is now in you, moving you towards obedience. Obedience, submission to the Father, is one of the evidences of having a regenerate heart. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, This is love for God, to obey His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. The nutshell is this, and God has just impressed me this week with this. In the same way that my body can do nothing unless it is obedient to my mind, so also the church of Christ can do nothing unless it is submitted to Jesus Christ. And God is calling us disciples of him, professors of him, those who profess him, not just professors, but those who profess Jesus Christ as Lord, to be as sold out to Christ as Christ was to the Father, to imitate him in his submission, to imitate him in his radical obedience, to be willing to submit to him at all costs. This is, I believe, something that is terribly lacking in the church today. There is, in Christendom, I want to coin a new word here, a new heresy. It's probably called by other names, but I don't know what they are. But it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's believism. Believism. Tony Campolo said this at Bethel College this last week, and it hit me like a ton of bricks because God was already dealing with me on this issue. He says, the problem with Christian colleges, this is, this is vintage Tony Campolo, the to problem with Christian colleges is that they're full of believers. And then he said, this is the same problem that there is in churches. They're full of believers. People who believe, but it stops there. You have a theoretical belief. You assent to a bunch of propositions about Jesus Christ, but it stops there. Full of believers. But then he said this. Where in the Bible does it say, go out and make believers of all nations? It doesn't say go out and make believers of all nations. Go out and try to get people to assent to these propositions. What the Bible says is go out and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them. Go out and make disciples. 
disciplined ones, people who submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because where is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is wherever people let him be king. The kingdom of God is nothing over and beyond those people who ascend to his lordship, who submit to his lordship. And the kingdom of God grows as those people yield to him on an ongoing basis and make Jesus Christ lord of their heart, lord of their minds, lord of their lifestyles, lord of their careers, lord of their pocketbooks, lord of their families. That's the kingdom of God as a mustard seed growing throughout the entire world. That's a message that the church in America, I believe, desperately needs to hear where we just have assent to propositions. Let me share with you what has gotten under my goad this week. God's been doing some incredible things. And it just uh, made me go to this passage and see Jesus Christ being held up as an example here. Some of you know Tyler D'Armond. He's, he's, uh, he works with our senior high group. Um, he's been on as an intern here, working a couple hours a week for, for some time. We're coming up to the new budget, uh, it's a new budget year, and we're looking at what we need, and we thought, you know what, we need to, to take him on. I can't believe that it's actually, almost, okay, never mind. Um, <clears throat> you got, Lord, slow down that clock right now in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Talking to him about, um, well, we, we were going to bring him on, we're, we're thinking about bringing him on full time uh, to help out with our senior high group. He's obviously got a gift for it, he's anointed. At Woodland Hills, our policy is that if you're going to be a part of the full-time staff, you need to be in total compliance with our statement of faith, which includes being baptized by immersion. And Tyler had not been baptized by immersion. In fact, uh, Jennifer Robinson, who works with the children, was in the same position, and we were thinking about bringing her on full-time, but she also has not been baptized by immersion. So I set up a little Bible study with Tyler, and we went to Bethel College, and, and they came to the office, and we had a little Bible study about baptism. And it was good, and God moved, and, and, and it, was, it was real nice. But one of the things that we noticed as we were going through here, I'd noticed this before, but I'd never acted on it. It's funny how you can notice things and not act on it. Or you reinterpret them, okay? But we, we, we saw this. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon all these people, they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they all got baptized that day. 3,000 people got baptized in one day in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 8, Philip goes to the Sumerians. And he begins to preach the gospel. There they believe, and they get baptized right away. Then later on, Philip is walking along, and he sees this Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot, and he gets in the chariot and starts to witness to him. The guy believes. And while they're still in the chariot, he looks out, and he sees this, this uh, body of water. And, and the Ethiopian eunuch says, look, here's a bunch of water. Why shouldn't I get baptized? And Philip says, well, if you believe, you can. So they go out, and they get baptized. They did not wait for the in-laws to be there. They did not wait to call all your unsaved friends to be a public testimony. They just obeyed. In Acts chapter 10, wild stuff here. In Acts chapter 10, uh, and I, this isn't even a sermon on baptism, but it's kind of sounding like it, isn't it? Acts chapter 10, Peter goes to the household of Cornelius. He preaches the gospel. The Holy Spirit falls on them. Bam, Peter commands them all to get baptized. Now, that night, they all get baptized. Paul preaches to the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. He believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. They come home. The whole household gets baptized. Acts 19, they preach to the disciples of John the Baptist. They all believe. First thing that happens is they all get baptized. So I tell Tyler, so do you want to get baptized in January? Or we're going to have another baptismal service. And now the student turns into a teacher. He says, well, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. I, I, I got the point. You know, baptism, baptizo means to dip and to immerse and buried with Christ. Raised. I got that. But why are you telling me to wait two months to get baptized? <clears throat> I think I need to get baptized today. <laughs> uh. 
And I'm immediately kind of backpedaling. Well, let's not get carried away here. I mean, you know. God expects us to be practical. See, in the early church, they always did it like this. It wasn't until around the 4th century, Steve, when they started giving these uh, six-month catechism class before baptism. Tyler says, I want to get baptized today. I want to do it like they did in the Bible. And if this is true, it, it, it seems to me that as soon as you see it, you're supposed to do it. He had a point. So we got on the phone. We called all the YMCAs. Man, if we can buy... <clears throat> can we just uh, get into your pools here? They won't let me. What does YMCA, YMCA stand for? Youth for Christ? Or... Yes, they won't let me get baptized. So, we go, okay, fine, we're not members. Uh, well, this is the land of 10,000 lakes. So I call the church office. Tyler says, I'm game. <laughs> call the church office and tell them what we're going to do. And I t- end up talking to Jennifer. And I said, Jennifer, we're going to have a baptism today. To make a long story short, Jennifer calls me back in about a half hour and says, I'm going to be there. We go down to Lake Johanna. It's about 45 degrees. It is drizzling rain. We got about 20 people out there, and we just start praising the Lord. And we have a, right on the beach there, have a little uh, church service, a little worship service. And we go out into the water, and we baptized Tyler and Jennifer. And God was glorified. Amen. <clears throat> Praise God. Amen. Friday night, I'm sharing this with my small group. Marsha Erickson starts to get tears in her eyes. She goes, I don't know why, but I've always been put off being baptized. I just never felt comfortable with it. And this, this testimony is convicting me. And I'm thinking, oh no. Because <laughs> now it is 35 degrees outside. It's 10 degrees colder. But she said, I got to get baptized tonight. And we jump in the van, and we go down to Snail Lake. And we go out into this 35-degree water, and we get baptized. Praise God. And see, this is how they do it in Russia. That's how the bat. Amen. Amen. Throughout centuries, there are believers who, who didn't bat an eye at, 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 at obeying the Lord to this degree. And I'm not saying suffer for suffering's sake, but, but here's, here's what it was, would impress me. There is, I believe, and, and I never saw this as clearly as I've seen it this week, there is an urgency to obeying God. Jesus Christ, if we are disciples, we have just got to go all the way with this thing, you guys. He has got total claim on our life. He is our total Lord. In truth, you cannot be sort of Christian any more than you can be sort of pregnant. He is Lord of your life. He is total Lord. He deserves total allegiance. And that means that there is an urgency to obeying the Lord. This isn't about baptism. I'm not even talking about baptism. If God puts that on your heart, we've got to deal with that. But I'm not talking about baptism. There's no salvation in baptism. That's not the point here. But what it is is this. When Jesus Christ puts his spirit within us, the spirit of Jesus Christ is there. And Jesus Christ was radically sold out to God. And so there is in every believer a spirit that says, be radically sold out to God. That says it is urgent to obey, the God, uh, to obey God and urgent to obey him now. Charles Finney said this. The goal of sanctification is to bring the believer to the point where you would rather die than sin against your creator and savior. To make lordship of Jesus Christ the ultimate urgency of your life. This is what it means to seek first the kingdom of God, to put him first, to put him on his throne, to take every thought and every behavior and every attitude and say, Lord, my goal is to make it subject unto you. Urgency in obeying God. 
Sometimes as we're doing kingdom work, there are windows of opportunity that we will miss if we are not obedient to God now. You see, what I didn't see before is that in, in a subtle way, we were saying, and Tyler said this to me, it seems like you're almost being lackadaisical about this command. The Lord commands it, and we're saying, well, when we get around to it. We're saying when it gets convenient. We're saying when it feels comfortable to me. When, in fact, the, very, the Lordship of Jesus Christ should mean that those things are irrelevant. And he's got a great point there. We need to learn how to be urgent about obeying God and do it in the now. There are windows of opportunity as the mustard seed of the kingdom wants to grow. Windows of opportunity that we can walk through if we're obedient to the Spirit when he prompts us that we will miss if we start trying to sanitize things, make it to regulate it, make it more to fit into our convenient normal schedule. This last week on Monday, I went to a class that I was teaching, and there's a young lady outside of this class who was crying. I've talked to this lady for a, 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 about a month now. She had a stronghold on her that was incredible, a vibrant Christian who just came into this stuff, this yucky stuff, and her faith was going out the drain, and she was in despair, and and just terrible stuff and bitterness began to rise in her heart because she was wondering, why didn't God do things? And I got to the point where I told her that three days earlier on Friday, there's nothing I can do for you. I think you've got to just, uh, I, don't have, I can't fix you. She can't, if you think I'm going to fix you, I can't. I don't know what else to do here. You know everything I'm going to say. Maybe we just got to wait on this one and keep praying about it. She shows up on Monday right outside of my class and she goes, I need to talk to you. But now she's not angry. Now she's starting to cry. Her eyes are all watered up. As it turns out, I had asked Paul Eddy to take my class because we're dealing with a topic that he knows quite, about, quite a bit about. He's the one who teaches our, our New Believers class. And I'd asked him to take this class because um, uh, he owed me a couple of favors, and so I was like, I want a day off. <laughs> you see, here's the thing. If you're walking in the Spirit, you allow God to make kingdom coincidences, things that just turn out right. But if you're doing your own lordship thing, you're going to miss all those kingdom coincidences. Well, it just turns out Paul was there to take my class. There's a part of me that said, you know what? We've got to schedule this. Let's schedule a meeting for Friday. Da, 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 da. We'll set up, a, you know, whatever. But there's another part of me, and it was the Spirit of God that says, now is the window of opportunity to deal with this young lady. So I said, Paul, will you go and take this class? I'm going to, you know, be out here for a little bit. So right there in the hall, we sat down on some stairs. These steps going up to this hall, and we began to pray. Talked for a little bit. We began to pray, and she begins to sob. There's a brokenness there that had not been there before. Before, there had just been this anger and rage. Now there was brokenness. She begins to cry almost uncontrollably. And then, I'm telling you guys, God fell on us. The Spirit of God just whoosh, right there in that hall. It was like, whoa. And she begins to kind of shake all over. And then she begins to laugh. And then I begin to laugh. I'm praying for her right there in the hall. People are walking back and forth. <laughs> reminding themselves that this is a Baptist college. And before you know it, she's leaning against this wall, crying and laughing, going like this, going, "Woo!" <laughs> Praise God. But there was a window of opportunity that if I had gone, if I had chosen, if I had just tried to regulate my life, keep it convenient, keep it according to my schedule, that would not have happened. There is an urgency to obeying God, walking in the Spirit. Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, to live our life. Don't get overly involved in civilian affairs. It says, 1 Timothy 2.4, a good civilian, I mean, a good soldier does not get overly involved in civilian affairs, politics and the such. You know what I mean? Don't get overly involved in it. Don't get preoccupied with that. But always keep your ear turned to the captain. Because what is first and foremost important in our life is that we've got a job to do. We're stationed in an alien land where we're, we're, we have military posts to attend to. And what's first and foremost important 
is that we seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. We seek first to obey our Lord. We seek first to be submitted to Him. We seek first to follow His schedule, not our schedule. We seek first to do His will, not our will. Because that's what Jesus Christ did, and we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. There's an urgency to obeying God. Sometimes God will call us to do radical things if we're listening to Him. I don't believe in being foolish just to be foolish. Dressing up weird so people notice you and you think that that's godly or something stupid like that. I'm not talking about being impractical for the sake of being impractical. But sometimes Jesus Christ calls us to do radical things. Jesus Christ, God Almighty, came down to earth, became a man, died on the cross, a hellish death, descended into hell. Why? To save us. I'd say that's pretty radical. I'd say that's riotously, ridiculously, foolishly radical. And then he says to us, follow him. As he does, we are to do. We've got to be prepared to step out sometimes and do some radical things. He says, throughout the Gospels, you see this. He just goes to Matthew, Luke, John. Not Luke, but Matthew, John, James. He says, follow me. I can just see them say, well, wait, wait, wait. Um, I, got a, I got a business to run here. You know, I got a bunch of fish and kind of you know, feed the family sort of stuff. Jesus says, follow me. Boom. There's an urgency to obeying the Lord even when it's radical. Guy comes up to him and says, Lord, I want to be a disciple of yours. I want to follow you. I will follow you anywhere, it says. And Jesus, but then he goes, but, but look, at my dad died. And I've got to go back and bury him. And Jesus made this point just so we would chew on this for a little bit. He says, look, at, why don't you let the dead bury the dead? Follow me. I'd say that's pretty radical. He says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to count the cost. Be willing to take up your cross. If you follow me, you are going to suffer, he says. One of the people that we baptize... And they came up out of the water, going like this, you know. Said, this is the first time I've ever suffered for being a Christian. And it feels right. Okay, there's, there's an appropriateness to that. Jesus said that that's, it's a, she said, for the first time I realized that it, this wasn't for free. He paid an incredible price. If I think I'm suffering right now, what did he go through becoming a man dying on the cross going to hell for me? The Bible says, blessed are we when we suffer with him. Sometimes the Lord calls us to do radical things. I personally know people who have given up six-figure incomes to go to Tanzania and minister to the poorest 1% of the population on the earth. That's radical obedience. People who have made career changes because God told them to. People who have sold $300,000 houses to move into the inner city because they felt called to minister there. That's radical obedience. That's discipleship, and we have to in our heart. Be prepared to do that. God's not calling all of us to do that, but if God calls you, there's an urgency to obeying Him. Being open to God calling us to do radical things, walking in the Spirit. And it starts as a mustard seed. Maybe this morning, the radical thing that God's going to call you to do, if you listen to Him, if you follow the promptings of the Spirit, is maybe to go out and buy your wife some flowers, to get out of the rut of a marriage, or the rut that you call a marriage. God is, he's not just interested in building the kingdom and empires and whatever. He's interested in building the kingdom in your heart and then in your family's heart and then in your neighborhood's heart and then in your church's heart. Start by listening to the Spirit of God saying, you know what, your wife could really use a kind word here this morning. Your daughter really wants to go out to eat with you. You just listen to me. Take her out to eat. Break the stupid rut that you're in where you're at this gridlock warfare. Do what Jesus did. He laid down his life ahead of time. Be radically obedient in that. There are people who have given $300 to somebody here because they thought they needed it. Just anonymous, send them $300. And see, the thing is, Christianity is supposed to pinch. <laughs> That's what we are. We wrestle with the flesh here. The flesh does not like this. Jesus says, die. 
Give up your life. Paul says, I crucify myself daily. The flesh doesn't like this. The flesh resists this. The flesh says, no, that $300 is mine. No, this six-figure income is mine. My house is mine. My car is mine. My life, my time, I will do with it what I please. I am Lord of my own life. That's what the flesh says. And Jesus Christ comes along and says, that is not right. Puts a spirit in us that longs to do something more than that. And it hurts. And it's supposed to hurt. But here's the thing. There is such a blessing when you do it. If you lose your life, you find it. You don't know what living is until you've surrendered and submitted absolutely without conditions to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The Lord gave me this word the other night. It was, it was simply this, that very simple analogy, but I, as a clog in the artery of a heart prevents the blood from flowing into the heart, so also a spirit of disobedience just prevents the Spirit of God from moving in your life. And as a clogged heart inhibits the working of the body, you know, you got a clogged heart, you might not die, but man, you get tired really quick. And you can't do what people are supposed to do. You just can't enjoy life. It's just, you're kind of going through life like this. So also, when there are areas of our life that are in disobedience to God, whether it's a habit, whether it's a relationship, or whether it's just a spiritual deafness that you go throughout your week without giving any ear to God when the captain's commanding you, that is a clog that is there. And instead of living as more than conquerors, living victorious, living with joy, living with God's peace, you're limping along in your life. And you're wondering where the reality is. You're wondering where the goods are. You're wondering where the gifts of the Spirit are. You wonder why there's no kingdom work being done. The reason why Jesus Christ, the man had perfect power with God is because he had perfect obedience to God. He says all the time, the Father in me does the work because I seek to do his will, not my own will. And so it is with us. I would have missed that blessing in the hall had I not been listening at that time. There was such an anointing there as we came out of the water there, shivering like crazy. The flesh is saying, what, are you an idiot or something? But I'm telling you, There's a joy there, Jesus said. In fact, we'll get to this passage later on. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the sufferings of the cross. God wants to move in your life. God wants to move in your family. God wants to move in your neighborhood. God wants to move in this church. God wants to move throughout these twin cities. He wants to pour out his spirit. But the key to the whole thing is this. Are there hearts that will say yes? And not just say yes, but actually do yes. Actually say, Lord, you are the Lord. You have your way. I'm listening to you. I go throughout my day. I go to my job. I do my family with my ear turned towards you. I bring my life into conformity to your word. I bring my life into conformity to your spirit. And open up that valve so the spirit of God begin to jet through there and do what he wants to do. The mustard seed is in our life. And it wants to grow. 